morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. And if you didn't know this, I love being one of the pastors here. I love God's family here at Fellowship Greenville. Um, if you're here today in any capacity, thank you very much for being here. If you're a regular or a member, if you're an odd one, odd two, Facebook, YouTube, wherever you are, however you're tuning in, thank you very, very much for joining us. <clears throat> Additionally, if you are visiting with us today, super, super great to have you. We do not take lightly that you have chosen to gather with us today, and so we want to be as helpful as we can. And because of that, we have the best team ever assembled out at the Welcome Center in the Commons, ready to answer any question that you have about life here at Fellowship Greenville. Please go by and bother them out there in the Commons after service. <clears throat> and if you are visiting, one of the things that we would like for you to know is that on Sunday mornings, you will usually find us preaching and teaching straight through entire books of the Bible. Um, that's our regular practice, our regular habit. And the reason for this is we just want to understand the Bible the way God gave it to us. We don't want to like cut and paste out of it to fit our own agenda. We want to read it like he gave it. And this approach has us studying the New Testament book of John right now. And we are on the back half of John, and that's important. <clears throat> so here are some, some fun facts about the back half of John. As Jesus tells, or as John tells the Jesus story, the first 12 chapters cover three years, but the last nine chapters <clears throat> cover three weeks. But get this, we're in the middle of a section right now in John chapters 13 to 17 that take up just three hours. So, needless to say, John wants us to pay very close attention to the Jesus story at this point. Things are being said and done in these three hours that are utterly crucial to what it means to follow Jesus. And even Jesus's friends at the time could feel it. They were gathered in the upper room to celebrate Passover. It would have been a festive and momentous occasion. And then Jesus bends down and starts to wash their feet like a lowly servant, and that freaks them out a little bit. And if that wasn't enough, then Jesus looks around at everybody and makes direct eye contact and goes, one of you is going to betray me. And then they get extra freaked out. So Judas leaves, and they're like, wow, tough luck for that guy. And then John even says that they totally don't understand what's happening. Um, because as he's getting ready, Jesus is getting ready to launch into his long and final discourse that goes all the way to the end of 17. By the way, this is the night he's arrested. This is like his win one for the Gipper speech. This is the highest concentration of the words of Jesus that we have ever in the whole Bible. But as he launches into the thing, he gets interrupted. He gets, who has the audacity and the stupidity to interrupt God? That's what we get a look at today. <clears throat> I, I know that wouldn't have been me or you, but somebody is crazy enough to do so, and that's what we get to look at today in John chapter 13. So if you wanna go ahead and find your way there in your Bible, <clears throat> that would be excellent. John chapter 13, we'll get there in a few minutes. Now, <clears throat> As you are finding your way there, I want you to think about something with me for just a few minutes. I want you to think about the biggest misunderstanding that you've ever experienced. <clears throat> the biggest misunderstanding that you've ever been a part of, like you thought that they or the individual or the person said or meant or wanted X, Y, or Z, but really they wanted apples and you weren't even close. Like you're not even in the right ballpark. You're not e even near what they wanted. And you just misjudged and you misread and you misunderstood what was supposed to be happening and your part in all of it. That's what I want you to think about. 
<clears throat> where or when was the biggest misunderstanding you've ever kind of been close to? Here's a really simple example. You guys have been hanging out in a, kind of a larger friend group, and a couple of times you were the last two people left after everybody else went home, and you and her just one-on-one because you kind of had some good laughs and good talks about like family stuff and God stuff and, and other, other deep stuff. And one time you were downtown, and all your friends had already gone home, and there was this like lull in the conversation that neither of you felt the need to, to fill, really like nice, simple space there. And so you're like, it's game time. And so you reach over to grab her hand, and she jerks it back immediately and says, what the heck, what do you think you're doing? And that is how you temporarily lose a friend group. That's how you do that. You, you misread, you misunderstand, you misjudge, you don't get pick up on the signals, that's, that's the deal. When Sarah and I were engaged, thankfully she was letting me hold her hand at the time we went to do premarital counseling with the one and only uh, Rabbi Gandalf Reed Lehman, and Reed was kind of pressing in really hard on certain parts of our personalities. And he said, he goes, Jim, listen here. Sarah is so naturally conflict-avoiding Enneagram 9 Go Team that you guys are gonna get into discussions and you're gonna steamroll her and that's not the problem. The problem is you're gonna steamroll her and you think that you're going to be helping her. And I thought, hmm, beard stroke, very, very interesting. I mean. I know that I can get a little expressive and a little intense, but Sarah is so sweet, wonderful, lovely, godly, pretty happy that I would never ever do such to her. Fast forward eight years and I can take you to the exact place on the exact rug in our dining room and if you guys know this about me, maybe it can occasionally be good for preaching, but when I get excited, I start to talk a little bit uh, quickly, a little bit fast, I kind of speed up a little bit. And usually, if I'm talking fast, it means that I have thought something through so thoroughly that I know that I know what I'm talking about, and whoever is within earshot needs to listen up. It's really, really humble of me to, to do this. <clears throat> now, <laughs> Sarah and I are standing on this rug, and it was just a small disagreement. It wasn't a big thing, nothing huge. And I took off into this response that had me going like zero to 60 <clears throat> in no time. Sweetie, that can't be the case because I've already talked to these people about this, which has to mean that this is true, which obviously means that we shouldn't do this other thing. And clearly, if we do this one singular thing, it's the only option that makes sense to us. Can't you see that I'm trying to serve you, sweetie? Please, please, please. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just what. And so I sat back and I waited for her to throw in her Enneagram 9 towel, her anti-avoidance towel or avoiding conflict towel and just go, ah, fine, I, I guess you're right. But... On that fateful day, the lovely Sarah changed my life and totally disarmed me. She said, when you talk fast, I can't hear you. And in my brain, if I'm talking fast, I have arrived at the zenith and pinnacle of understanding, okay? <clears throat> I was totally shook because I was like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? I'm in the sweet spot of understanding right here. What, what are you talking about? I am on the right train of thought heading in the right direction with great haste, and I want you to get on board. I could not conceive in that moment of being misunderstood, especially by the person that I love the most. And the moral of the story is that Reed Lehman now has a, a side hustle. It is a consulting prophecy business, and he is, uh, <clears throat> he's, doing, he's doing fine, you know, so congrats, Reed. <clears throat> now, uh, if you know me, you'll know that one of my uh, love languages is m really bad, terrible memes. And so here's a meme about, this is a monk who misunderstood something. Uh, I think my favorite, there you go, just look for a second there. Um, <laughs> I think my favorite part is just the dude's eyes. It was celebrate the whole time. Like I think, 
I, I really love that. Like, I hope you fall asleep tonight thinking about this dude's like wide eyes. <clears throat> Just a slight distinction there, buddy. I also love that my uh, Catholic friends uh, love this. <clears throat> but it does, it does make me think about a more narrow category of misunderstanding. Obviously, it's no fun to misread or like cross wires with the people that you love or your friends or your family. But what about misunderstanding God? Like, aren't the stakes higher when that's on the table? Like, isn't that a little bit more fragile? I know people who grew up very, very ingrained in legalism. And they knew that being a Christian meant this long list of things that you could and couldn't watch and sing and read and drink and wear and listen to and do. And slowly, these people, by God's grace, realize that, yes, 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 that stuff matters. But what matters most is your heart. That's what God is after. But for decades, these people sometimes lived in misunderstanding. And the whole time, they were like, no, 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 we're good. We're right. We're We've got our, our stuff together here. Or I think about my good friend Mark Moody who used to be our community groups pastor and I asked his permission to share this. Many of you know, several years ago for dozens of reasons, he really believed that God wanted him to pack up his family and move to a church in Austin, Texas for a position there and he did and if you talk with Mark, he will tell you that was one of the hardest years of his life. So like he's had to wrestle with, did I, did I misunderstand God? Like if you know Mark, you know that he believes that God is totally sovereign and in control and Lord over all of that. But it was really hard. Did I, did I miss it somehow? And here's another question. What if he never knows? That's like misunderstanding whether or not you misunderstood. That's next level. Here's the deal. Are you okay if you have to live with something like that? Is that all right? And this isn't just all about misunderstanding in your past. This can be about decisions that you're currently in the middle of right now. Think about the thing that, the, that is the heaviest in your life right now that you're trying to juggle or, or, or manage. Like you, you might think that God wants you to start this business or separate from your spouse or avoid that hard conversation with a friend or not do counseling because you're just way too busy or do this or that with your kids schooling. But what if you are wrongly interpreting what he wants for you? What do you do when you're in that place, when you're confronted with that heavy decision? And you know me, I love Bible questions like, is the kingdom of God here or is it coming? Yes, is Jesus full of grace or truth? Absolutely, I love like embracing tensions like that, but that is not what we are talking about. We're talking about something completely different. This is a place of deeper dependence and trust. <clears throat> Now, here's what I'm talking about in all of this. What do you do when you misunderstand Jesus, when you don't get what he's saying, when you're not all the way sure what he wants from you? Like you think he's saying X, Y, or Z, and so you start to act on it, but the whole time he's really saying, be still, my child, and you can't hear him because you're busy already acting and maybe presuming. If you're in a place like that and you start to realize it, what's, what's the move? And I feel like we're right to ask this question because this is what his disciples felt a lot of times 2,000 years ago when he was walking and talking with them in the flesh. And so now today, as his disciples, we still feel the same thing in different ways. So this is what we have to think about this morning. What do you do when you're not understanding Jesus? That is our question. 
And our answer will come from just a few verses in John chapter 13. We will concentrate on verses 36 through 38. But to give us a little momentum, let's read John chapter 13, verses 33 through 38. That's what we'll read uh, today. John 13, verses 33 through 38. I'll read and then say my line, the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, uh, a big hearty thanks be to God. So what do you do when you don't understand Jesus? John 13, starting in verse 33. Here we go. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, last week we studied through the end of verse 35. So I sat down this week to do sermon prep and I went, wait a second. I've got three like tiny little verses where there's nothing, there's no action. Like what am I gonna do with that? And the more I just sat and thought about it and prayed about it and wrestled with it, the more I realized in these few verses we have a perfect case study. And the reason this is a perfect case study is that Peter is not completely getting what Jesus is doing, what he's up to. Peter's not understanding, and he's also not understanding what he should do about it, and it starts to frustrate Peter. And it actually reminds me about how uh, this was the case for the disciples all along their journey quite often. One of my favorite lines in all of the Gospels is in Matthew chapter 8. After Jesus completely calms the storm on the boat, I love what it says. The the disciples didn't say, oh, he's Jesus. I love the response uh, of the disciples in Matthew 8. Matthew writes, and they were amazed, shocked, and they asked, what kind of man is this? Like, we don't have a category for this guy that even the winds and the seas obey him. They they had no way. They couldn't understand. They, They couldn't grasp it. And what we have here today with Peter is a negative example of that and one that should be instructive to us. And this snapshot of Peter will aid us in pondering what in the world do we do when we're misreading what God wants from us. Also, just to be clear about the simplicity of our text, here's the super, super abridged uh, JTV, the Jim Thompson version. Here it is. Peter, Jesus, where are you going? Jesus, you can't come right now. Peter, watch me. Jesus, you're going to deny me. And scene. That's it. That's how the whole chapter ends, right? It it seems like there's nothing here, but I am convinced that if we focus, there's so much here to challenge us and encourage us. So let's look at a few pieces of our passage for just a little bit. Now, um, First off, this might sound like an argument from silence, but you kind of just have to trust me on this one. There is no, forgive me, there's no Greek conjunction that introduces verse 36 
um, like a but or an and. Like verse 36 would normally read, it would flow something like this. But Simon Peter said, or and Simon Peter said, or so Simon Peter said, but none of that is there. And so this is how it actually reads. This is funny, use your imagination, it's more fun. Ready, this is how it reads from verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Okay, this means Peter interrupts Jesus. So Jesus calls them little children. It's this term of endearment. It's this affectionate term back in verse 33. But here, in a negative way, Peter is acting like a little child who just wants to interrupt whenever they want and talk about whatever they want. I know your kids never did that, but Peter has a problem with it here. And Jesus is just starting to launch into this big, big discourse, and he's starting to talk about the true mark of disciples, love. And then Peter directly interrupts, changes the subject, and rewinds to something Jesus said earlier because he wasn't satisfied with the answer that he had. And I also... Maybe you can feel it. I love Jesus' patience right here. Like I, I can feel like I can read that. He calmly and confidently just says, Peter, again, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. And that statement might feel veiled or abstract to us, but if you read all of John's gospel, that statement is a bit more specific. <clears throat> Jesus is not vaguely talking about his physical presence not being with him. If you read all of John's gospel, which Peter hadn't yet, this is a clear statement about the cross. Jesus is going to the cross, and Peter can't follow him right now. And that's what Peter can't understand, that he can't do that right after Jesus, because that's Jesus' job as the sinless and divine Messiah to go and die for the sins of the world. But because Peter isn't satisfied with, you can't come right now, he's not satisfied with that, he doesn't back down, and he gets even more frustrated. (coughs) Now, for me, right now is enough of a teachable moment, because here's the deal. For me, if I don't understand what God wants from me, or I get a strong sense that I'm starting to misjudge what he's up to, I have to realize and preach to myself that there is no way that frustration at him is going to solve things, and I do it anyway. That's the problem. I get anxious, I start to blame people, I start to blame God, I, like I point the finger at him and go, dude, why aren't these things right in my life? We were friends. I thought she would at least let me hold her hand. I thought she was the one. I've been faithful. I've been obedient. God, this has to be the job that you're providing for me. And sometimes I still feel like God isn't answering my prayers when I want and how I want. And if that's the case, there's a high chance that I'm going to go off and do or say something extreme. And that's exactly what Peter does next. Again, he's like a little child here, insisting on his way. Listen to his extreme response because he's not getting his way. Look at verse 37. But Jesus, why? Why? You ever hear your kid say that? Why? Why can't I follow you? And then he gets extreme. Oh, yeah, I'll lay down my life for you. And it seems noble, but if we read it in its flow, it's, it's a, little bit, a little bit intense, a little bit over extreme. Now, if you're a parent... Maybe your kids are three or four. Think back to when they were three or four. Sometimes explaining stuff to them at that age was really, really tough. If they were running headlong into traffic, but they didn't know that the traffic was was coming, and you grabbed them, they would just complain about how you hurt their arm when you pulled them close to you, and they have no idea how you actually saved them. 
And so what felt like a little pain was actually a lot of protection. And now you have to try to calm their emotional extremism. Now, think about how God is a perfect heavenly father to us. Think about how infinitely patient he is with us. <clears throat> now, there's a little bit of that seasoning this interaction between Jesus and Peter here. But also, what John is doing as a storyteller here is <clears throat> masterful, and here's what I mean. Does Peter know what Jesus is doing? No, not totally. Does Jesus know what Peter is doing? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Jesus knows that Peter can't go to the cross with him right now. However, there's a little tiny repeated word in verse 36 and verse 37 that we're supposed to pick up on, and it is the word now. And why is that important? Because if you go to the very last chapter, the last few verses in the book of John, Jesus and Peter are having a conversation after the cross and resurrection, and listen to what Jesus says to him then. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but <clears throat> when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus later tells Peter, hey man, you actually will lay down your life for me? <clears throat> and according to John 21 and early church tradition, he did it on a cross. But when that time comes, he's not gonna want to do it. It's different than John 13. And Jesus knows and he feels all of those things in his conversation with Peter in chapter 13. And he sees how off Peter is in his assessment and Worse, he knows that Peter is still going to take a few more steps down the road of misunderstanding, and that is verse 38. <clears throat> Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows tonight, you will deny me three times. And while those denials happen over in chapter 18, that's where John, this is where John ends the dialogue and the chapter here in 13. And I think, I think Peter's words here dry up for a purpose because John, he's a master storyteller and he wants us to reflect. What, what if Peter was thinking, oh, wait, 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 I saw what just happened with Judas and I'm not gonna roll like that, I'm gonna one-up him. Jesus said, somebody's gonna betray me and then Judas left and then he just said, somebody's gonna deny you. Maybe Peter's going, I'm better than Judas, I got this. I don't know, I don't know. But John wants us to consider, he wants us to reflect, if we were in Peter's shoes, what would we do? This is what we've trying to bend, uh, this is what we're trying to unpeel the layers on here. What do you do when you, you don't totally understand what Jesus wants of you? And now we can start to answer our question, but we're gonna do so in a negative way with what not to do. Here we go. If you're confused about what God is doing, you should never <clears throat> presume on his plan, act in extremity, or deny his love and presence. If you're confused, if you're like, okay, I, I don't think I'm gauging all this right, if you're confused about it all, you should never presume on his plan, act in extremity, or deny his love and presence. <clears throat> Jim, where do you get those three ideas? Thanks for asking, I get them from Peter's responses. One, he presumed. Jesus, I can follow you. Two, he spoke out of a fanatical and extreme place. Oh yeah, I'll go die for you. Three, and he denied that he was one of Jesus' followers and that he was with him, Jesus' presence. And I phrase it like this because I know how tempted we are to respond to God in these ways and more when it's hard to specifically trace what he's doing in our life 
and in the world. But I think we can learn here from Peter's negative example so that if you are scratching your head and furrowing your brow about what it is exactly that God is doing, we should be very cautious and wary of presumption and extremism and denial. And this is not just Peter. I know people, you know people, that when something bad happens, they immediately, right away, they go, well, either God's not real or he doesn't love me. That's what they say. And even if they don't say it, like, maybe you've been inclined to, to think that or to feel that. They downshift to denial so quickly. And I also know people that go, well, I have a passion, and the passion is spiritually justified. Peter here thinks he's like, being spiritual and relational to Jesus. I'll go die for you. I can follow you. Jesus has been saying for years, follow. So some people have this passion and they go, well, my passion is spiritually justified. Or they say this, they'll go, I have a peace about it. Peter obviously had a peace about it, thinking, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'll follow you. I'll lay down my life for you. And then they proceed just thinking they know exactly what God wants. Now, please hear me. Having spiritual passion and having a peace about God's activity in your life are not evil, but sometimes, even without us knowing it, they can breed a kind of presumption that does not yield understanding. And that's why we need to start to think of the answer to our question in <clears throat> positive terms. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> Let's say it like this. It is not primarily our grip on God, but his grip on us that will sustain us when we don't understand what he is doing in our lives. Why do I say it like that? Because that was Jesus' perspective that night on both his life and on Peter's. Again, it's not our grip on God. It's his grip on us that's gonna sustain us when we're in the fog of misunderstanding. And if you get this truth and it gets you, there is so much freedom here. <clears throat> Little children of the Father, this freedom will protect you and save you even if it hurts a little bit because there is traffic coming that you don't know about that he is delivering you from. We have to know that he is the sovereign. We have to see him as the one who sees all things that we can't both now and in the future. We have no other hope. This, this is the old Baptist adage, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. There really is a great beauty and glory to that if it sinks in. If you don't know how you're going to make ends meet, if you are terrified that he is going to leave you, if you are distraught that your son is making bad decisions, if you know that you shouldn't drink to numb the pain, but it's just too easy of a Band-Aid, if your anxiety is at an all-time high because of everything that's happening in the world, I know that it is impossible to fathom, but he is still strong enough to keep us in his love. He is still good, he is still God, and if we are his, he will hold us fast. More than feeling like we are rightly interpreting everything he's doing, it's his grip on us that is going to keep us and sustain us and be faithful to us no matter what. We, we have to believe this. We don't have multiple choice options. And here's the thing. For just a brief moment in the upper room that night, Peter didn't believe it. Didn't mean it's not true. It's, it meant he couldn't feel it in his soul. Hey, hey. Yes, Peter walked on water, but he also sank. He took his eyes off of it. 
And so we have to learn from his mistakes. We have to hold fast to the truth that he will hold fast to us. There are a couple other things in this passage that I want to draw out. Things that we can do so that misunderstanding doesn't plague us. And the first one I'll be brief on because it was last week's message, and that's the love thing, the verses 34 and 35 right there. And I think in light of Peter's frustration, we can read these commands to love in a nuanced way. Think about it like this. Loving one another sacrificially like Jesus guards us from wrongly acting on our misunderstanding because it uses our energy to rightly prioritize others above ourselves. Do you you get that? Last week we defined love, but in this Jesus-Peter interaction here, we can see a new beauty to it. This love, it, it actually guards us and it protects us and it shields us. Do you know how much less time you have for sin and presuming on God if you're trying to find new and creative and fun and cool and happy and relational ways to serve and love others? So much less time, right? But Peter could not hear the invitation to that kind of love because he was too busy with his own agenda, and that's why he had to go and interrupt God. Nice move, Peter. And so... May we love, yes, because Jesus commands it, but may we also love because it can protect us from ourselves. That's how we read these commands of Jesus to love in light of the Jesus-Peter interaction. Also, and I feel uh, justified in doing this because just a chapter from now in an upper room time, like we're up there in the room, we're talking like 13 minutes. So 13 minutes from right now, maybe nine minutes, I don't know how fast Jesus said these things. Jesus talks about abiding in his words. He says, abide in my words in chapter 15. And I wonder if when Jesus said, hey, abide in my words, if everybody looked over at Peter like, like we know that nine minutes ago, bro, you didn't abide in Jesus's words. And so Jesus is like, hey guys, abide in my words. Like, again, if you use your imagination when you read the Bible, you're a friend of mine, and it's just way more fun. But here's the deal. Here in chapter 13, Peter does the opposite of what Jesus encourages them to in chapter 15. Peter doesn't abide in Jesus' words. He dismisses them. And so for us, if we abstract up from Jesus' words that night to God's word and Holy Scripture, here's what we have to say. Spending time immersed in God's word has the power to calm and repurpose and change our misunderstandings. And this is further proven in Peter's life. If you go read his letters in 1-2 Peter, how he talks about God's word there. And so if, if, if we immerse ourselves in God's word, God's word has the power to change our misunderstandings and our misperceptions. So what do we do if we're misreading or misunderstanding God? We go, we get his book, we get his word, we get his story, we read and we soak and we immerse ourselves in what he has already said clearly and we pray that it would change us. I can't not share a a story I heard this past week. William Henry Brisbane, which is a great name, was born in Beaufort, South Carolina in 1806 and his family owned and traded dozens of slaves. Brisbane got married at the age of 19, and with marriage came greater responsibility and ownership on the family plantation. And with all of this added life pressure, Brisbane just remembered, oh yeah, I should probably seek God 
in his word if I'm gonna make sense of everything and if I'm gonna be able to cope with this pressure. But as he began to dig and immerse himself in God's word, he started to see that he had been lied to by all of his Sunday school teachers and all of his pastors. Not only did the Bible not defend slavery, it was outright against it and opposed to it. And with this conviction that Brisbane slowly came to hold, he lost all sources of income. And most of his family and friends completely disowned him. And most importantly, he went and freed the 30-something slaves that he had owned. And he helped them to the north, and he helped them settle up there and get jobs. And then Brisbane sat down to write a book called Slaveholding Examined in Light of the Holy Bible. And I, I found a PDF online this past week and I printed out like all 250 pages and I can't wait to read it. But here's how he closes his last page and he's writing to all of his friends in the South who claim to be Christians. Brisbane says, my heart throbs with anguish. My eyes are suffused with tears as I am writing this with my Bible before me. Brethren, you are doing your souls a grievous wrong whilst thus you manacle your brother and mutilate your Bible. The Holy Bible was designed for man's redemption, not his enslavement. Oh, precious volume, how many bruised hearts hast thou healed? How many dungeons hast thou illumined? How many prison doors hast thou opened? And how many captives hast thou restored to freedom and to God? What we have to see here is that God's word deconstructed his misunderstanding and rebuilt it and reconstructed it in ways that led to life and liberation and hope. And yeah, 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 here's the deal. Categorically, we know that that's true. Oh, absolutely, I need to be in God's word if I want to hear from God. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen people anxious and curious about what God wants from them. I've seen people on the verge of extremism and anger with God that they want to know what to do and they will not seek him in his word. Is that you? Do you want to be lifted out of the life pressure that comes with misunderstanding? Of course you do. But do you also want to sacrificially make space to hear from God in his word? How you doing with that? At least for a moment in the upper room that night, Peter learned this the hard way. He did not abide in his words. And now we have the chance to take the right step where Peter took the wrong one. We have a chance to abide in his word. Why? It has the power to calm our misunderstandings, to repurpose them, to rebuild them, to reconstruct them, and to transform them for Jesus' sake. Finally, a little bit beyond this, there is a broader point of application, and it's something about Peter not trusting Jesus the way that he should. Now, I get this point of application because it's every application to every sermon in John. Don't forget what John says at the very end of his book. I write all of these things so that you would believe, same word as trust, so you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. So, I, I, I see that there's something about trust here because everything is about trust and belief in John. But also, uh, chapter divisions aren't inspired, so just listen to how it flows once again, starting in verse 35. Excuse me, starting in verse 38. Truly the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
The very next thing that Jesus says is about trust and belief. So this is what this means for us. Trusting God means depending on his word and his promises even when we don't have all the answers that we want. This is us trying to learn from Peter's bad example here. Peter could not live with, hey, where I'm going, you can't follow. He couldn't live with it. It wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy him. He had to have more. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I okay living with unanswered questions? And John's answer for you is, yes, yes, you should be. In fact, that's the kind of faith and trust that pleases God. Yes, the language of faith and trust and belief should be defined in terms of like allegiance and faithfulness, but it should also be defined in terms of trust even when the answers that you want are out of reach or perhaps even threatened. The kind of faith that we're called to is a dependent reliance on who God is and what he has promised regardless of the situation or circumstance. If the business venture doesn't work out, if the family drama isn't resolved like you want it to be, if the healing isn't coming like you prayed, if the sin struggle isn't fading like you want it to, if if you can't let go of what she said to you, here's what you have to hear, friends. God's promises are not good and loving based on how well we understand them. They are good and loving because he is good and loving. And believing his promises with a confidence that isn't demanding, right? That shows off God as awesome and worthy and beautiful and glorious to a watching world. May we never forget the old Martin Luther prayer that is so haunting. He said, God, give me clarity, but not at the expense of faith. That's what we're talking about here. Pursuing understanding of what God wants is great, but guess what might be even greater? Joyfully casting yourself on his promises when you still don't have the clarity you want. That is so crucial to life with God. And this leads us directly to the gospel of Jesus, the place where God is most clearly and plainly understood. Where is it that Jesus was going that Peter couldn't to the cross? And it's here that God's love and God's promises and our faith all collide. And it's here that we have all of the clarity that we need from God. The cross tells us that our sin is worse than we could imagine, but it even more loudly tells us that God's love is better than we can fathom. The cross tells us that our misunderstandings and our presumptions and our denials do not define us. But if we are trusting Jesus for eternal life and salvation, God's self-giving love in the gospel is what defines us. The cross, it speaks a better word than the word we often feel. In the face of our sin and our doubt and our questions and our uncertainty, the cross is God's clear word of grace to you. I forgive you. You are mine. I love you. I will always love you. I will never let go of you. You're a part of my family. You are a part of my mission. And the resurrection of Jesus is surety, not possibility, surety that all of our misunderstandings will one day finally die with death itself. The gospel of Jesus crucified and risen is the place 
where all of our demands for clarity must bow. This good news is the decisive reason why we need to cling to God with everything we've got. And if our eyes are fixed on what has been accomplished for us in the cross and resurrection, I don't think we'll be led astray by Peter's bad example. And instead, we can abide in his words, we can trust his promises, and we can leave the rest to his sovereign will and wisdom and grace. Fellowship Greenville, because of what Jesus has done for us, trust in the Lord with all your heart, all of it, and lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him, submit to him, submit to the good news about Jesus, and he will make your path straight. That's good news. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we trust you for that right now. Right now, we feel like paths are crooked and crazy. We trust you to make our paths straight in Jesus' name. We trust you to make our faith strong and to make our lives reflect the life and love of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are not scared by our head scratching and our doubts and our questions. We thank you that you welcome our misunderstanding and our curiosity. You welcome us just as we are to come to you and to trust you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that we can come to you as we are with all that weighs us down. Thank you that you are patient and good and gracious and loving. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. You're the best. Amen.